about leadership over the next few sessions. And I know that some people can only be here for some of the sessions. That's fine. Um, we will make graduation certificates. I'm actually going to record, excuse me, the audio of all of the sessions. So if you really wanted to, you know, hear the audio of the sessions you missed or the sessions you missed, you could do a pop quiz in my office. <laughs>
knowing how to express oneself in a way that is appropriate for the you know, for, for a wide audience. So a lot of times we go, well, I, I think when I think of Obama and I think just of, of the presidency, I think it, I, when I was in Peace Corps and I was trying to explain like what the president was and who and, and sort of what the office was and for the first part of my time there it was Bush and then it was Obama. But like um, making the difference between a leader and a ruler mm. is, is sort of like a, a leader, you know, leads, sort of sets a tone, sets the direction, and then in, theoretically, in, in my mind, would be like invite people to, to follow that or to follow them. Yeah. And a ruler then, like on the opposite, sort of makes rules and says you, you can or cannot do this. Um, and so a leader sort of is that sort of invitation is, is a big component of, of being a leader. That's a big word, invitation. Jesus, talk about that. Well, because anybody who can say in a way that he did, follow me, mm -hmm. it's not a command. It is an invitation. Mm -hmm. But it's in a way that those that do so or hear the message know that they are fulfilling themselves, yeah. their own selfhood. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, there are obviously other leaders in the world in history that we don't do that. that. That's a big one, though. Like, just by default, the definition of a leader is somebody who has followers, right? Because if you don't have any followers, you can think you're a leader. You're not leading. Somebody would be willing to read um, this little bit from Luke 22 out loud, just the first paragraph. The second part um, is something else.
so that when they're standing in front of the city council or in front of the mayor or in front of an action with 3,000 people gathered from congregations and labor unions that are demanding rights for homeless folks, that they've got religious leaders and moms and you know cousins of people who have been homeless and homeless individuals themselves who are standing up in front of the crowd. And the organizer is in the back with a clipboard making sure the next person who's going to speak gets up there next. That's sort of the paradigm of the leader. And that's what Obama was raised up in um, as an organizer. So it's a different frame about is the leader ahead of the table or is the leader the one with all of the relationships that's making the whole kind of shebang happen but doesn't have to be up front. So the leader is the stage manager. In some ways, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Says the stage manager, right? So... I put this all forward to move to this, to kind of say to this idea about leadership in the frame of community organizing. Because so often when we think about leaders, we think about like formal titles and formal people. You know, you're the chair of this committee, or you're the senior warden, or what we call you today, the vice count, or something. You know, like there's, there's all these titles we get caught up in. Um, and that works in a very program mindset where you can say this person gets into this slot and these people will respond to their emails and you know, and they'll, this group will get together. And in some ways, you do have to do some organizing like that. But I really am fascinated by this idea that my buddy Jimmy Bartz has from that. Some of you saw this video during our adult porn series. But he talks about his church and this program they're doing called Laundry Love, where they go into a laundromat and they do a bunch of laundry with folks that are homeless and with folks that are, you know, like getting food stamps and for whom it makes a big difference to have their laundry done. And he talks about this and how it brought his church to life. And what he said is, we realize that people are the new program. You know, in church, we're always trying to find some new curriculum, some new program, we're starting to download something that I put up on a slideshow and we can talk about it and it'll, you know, fill all the views up. Hallelujah. And he says, it's not, it's not what's going to work these days. People are the program. And that's really at the heart of what community organizing is. Because at the heart of community organizing, it's exactly what it says. It's one of those wonderful titles that tells you exactly what it means. You're organizing a community. You're putting people in relationship with one another. You're getting in relationship with people. So Ed Chambers talks about, um, oh, story. So the two different models. So program versus organizing. In 2013, I was part of two actions in Washington, D.C. Um, and they happened very close to one another. I can't remember which was first, because I can't remember when Holy Week fell. Um, but one, the Bishop of Washington called me and told me that the bishops of Connecticut were bringing 100 people down on a bus to protest in Washington, and she needed me to help them do a Stations of the Cross across the National Mall against gun violence. And this was, you know, about a year after Newtown. And it was a very painful, very salient issue. And it was a very hard thing to organize because you had a hundred leaders. You had rectors and bishops and all of these people that were coming and they had their agendas and they had to get their thing done. And my boss, Luis, who was also a community organizing guy, he was the rector of St. John's and I, sort of, we agreed to help the bishop do this, but it was sort of hard for us because we knew that they were coming there in holy when the Capitol is empty because all of the congressmen and women are home and the White House 
tanks is even empty. And so they were going to come and protest, but there was going to be no one there to listen to them. And so it felt meaningful, and it was. It was a beautiful procession. It was crazy rainy. You can see the um, umbrellas. And, you know, it was very powerful imagery. The cross up by the Capitol and lots of priests and bishops standing up and talking about the need to end gun violence. But nothing came of it whatsoever. And there were Episcopalians all over the country that came. But nothing came of it. And a lot of it was because it was a bunch of bishops who said, let's go during Holy Week and do this thing. That same year, within a month of the same time, I was part of an action you can see on the right there. Um, I had been a part with a few other clergy members and some of the young adults in my congregation of getting to know some of our homeless neighbors. And we got to know some of our homeless neighbors, and some of them were advocating for something called permanent supportive housing, which is a way of, solu- of, of looking at homelessness that says the solution to homelessness is housing. And so we ought to be creating housing for people who are homeless. And the District of Columbia had been working on this, but then stopped under the current mayor, and they actually had a plan that they just stopped funding it. And so they had a certain number of people, but they hadn't been putting more funding, so they couldn't add people. And these homeless folks had said, I was on that list to get housing, and now I'm not getting it. And I'd really like to see my friend and my other friend, I'd like to see them get housed. And so we started working together, we started meeting, and we decided that we needed to make our presence felt. And so with these guys that were, you know, leaders in their various homeless shelters, we started meeting in the basement. It was a really nasty, dirty basement uh, of a homeless shelter every Wednesday and talking about how could we have the voice felt? How could we? And we realized there was a special election for a city council person coming up. And in a special election, um, not that many people vote. And so if you can get a few voters together and do something and say, we're voting together about this, even if you don't vote for a particular candidate, you can get a little attention. And so we said, we'll do an early voting action. We'll get a bunch of homeless people together, and we'll do an early voting action. And the clergy people in the room said, okay, that sounds great. What can we bring to this? And they said, well, just bring and show up. And you know, if, if you brought some food, we could get a bunch of homeless people to come and walk over to vote. So we brought food. And then one of them said, well, we're going to be in the paper. How do we make it so that people know what we're here for? And we decided together on a slogan, um, I am a voter. And so St. John's, the church I was part of, put up 400 bucks, and we bought like all these t-shirts. It was more than, we bought 400 t-shirts. It was more than that. We bought all these t-shirts that said, I am a voter. And at this rally, we handed out these shirts that said, I am a voter. And all of these homeless people walked together to vote early, and there were all these newspapers there, and we got reported on it. All these folks were doing interviews about, yeah, I'm here to vote because I want permanent supportive housing, because I want permanent supportive housing, because I want permanent supportive housing. And you know what? Later that year, the budget of D.C., they put $6 million new dollars for permanent supportive housing into the budget. And it didn't feel as grand and grandiose as being on the steps of the Capitol. It was slimy and dirty, and it was, you know, it was a zoo. But for the next two years while I was in D.C., I would see homeless folks wearing a shirt that said, I am a voter. <laughs> and what that says to a city council person is really powerful, I think. I had two very different perspectives on the action, but it was because this action came from the people who were going to be impacted. And it happened in a way that elected leaders could hear what was being said and could hear, we've got some power and we're going to exercise it. 
it, I think the big difference was how it came. It wasn't decided on high and then said, this is what we're doing. It was talked about and built momentum, and it had energy in a way that coming from the top down often can't. So here's the classic cycle of how you build toward one of those actions, how a community organizer builds toward change. You start with something called relational meetings. We're going to spend the bulk of our night tonight talking about relational meetings. Then you build to what are called house meetings. You get some of those people you've met with one-on-one. -on -one. The relational meetings are also called one-to-ones. And you put them together in a group, maybe in a house, maybe in a coffee shop, but you get people together to talk about an issue. And then based on what you've come together to decide, yeah, we're interested in this, you do some research. You say, this is... We're, we're going to figure out, is there another way that this has been done? What do we know about what needs to change? What do we know about what's possible? Is there any money in the Holy Communion budget for anything like this? If not, can we pressure the vestry to put some in there? You know, you do that research. And then you act. And we put action in there because there's another step out after action. And this often gets missed in the church and in life writ large, which is reflection and evaluation. Anytime we do something together, it's really, really helpful if you're going to be part of an organization that makes change over time, that you reflect on, did that action work? Did it, did it produce the results we wanted? Did it produce some results we didn't anticipate? Do we need to come back and like restart this? Do we need to keep this going? What do we need to do? We often miss this step. So this is the total kind of global view of how organizing sets to make change. We're going to spend time with one-to-one. If you look at your worksheet, one-on-one -on -one or one-to-one, -one, um, Ed Chambers, who's the guy I talked about earlier, the head of the IAF, I think he's actually retired now as the head of the IAF, but he talks about the one-on-one -on -one meeting as the most radical thing we teach in organizing. That is to say, how to have a meeting with one other person is the most radical thing they do, which seems like super basic, right? It seems like, what do I need to learn about this? Um, but he's making a frame that this is really, really different than the way we often interact. So because it's close to Passover, I like to frame this in a sort of Passover question. Anybody grow up with Jewish friends or in a Jewish household enough to hear, how is this conversation different than all other conversations? How is this night different than all others? So this is a conversation with a purpose. It's a spiritual discipline of building public relationships. It's not a normal conversation between friends. It's not chit-chat. It's not casual. It's about an intentional conversation. How many unintentional conversations do we have each day? You know, where you just run into people and you say, yeah, how's the weather? How you doing? Okay. You know, it's, this is not like that. And for Christians, it arises out of a theological conviction that people are made in the image of God and that Christ promises to meet us in one another. The conversation is intentional. You're trying to find out answers to questions. Um, how does this person see herself? Why do they do what they do for work? What are some key turning points in their life? What do they value? Who are they heroes? Who don't they like? What is their spiritual life like? What would they like it to be? How do they see community? What kind of community are they looking for? It, depending on what your campaign is or what your you know, setting is, your questions might vary a little bit. But generally, you're trying to, what we say, probe a little deeper 
and potential leaders. Our organization as a church, um, I really believe, is only as powerful as the relationships in the church are strong. Um, power in community organizing is defined as the ability to act, the ability to make change. And the ability to make change power in community organizing lies in relationship. You are as powerful as the number of people you can put in a room. Now sometimes people need a moment to talk about power. How are you overwhelmed with me talking about the word power? How does power hit you? I've lulled you to sleep. I'm, I'm ambivalent because in my mind, power, power can be both positive, can yeah. be negative, but it can also be positive. Yeah. What else? I'm okay with it because of the framework of leadership not being top down. Yeah. That there's power in all of us coming together and plumbing our God given deaths. Yeah. Yeah. Other people with power? Okay. It's one of those words that I know. And if you need to translate, translate it as the ability to act, the ability to make change. Um, if I use power as a shorthand, it's the ability to act. So your ability to act rests in how many relationships you have. And collectively, our ability to act as a congregation rests in our relationship. And I think they're both inside and outside. The more relationships we have inside, the more we can gather as a group. The more relationships we have outside, and the more we're able to interact in those relationships, the bigger difference we can make in our you know, city, our nation, our world. But you only make change in relationships. If you don't have a relationship, you're not going to make change. If you go to the conference building and it's empty, you don't have a relationship. Um, you can yell at the building, but it's not going to make any change. Um, so a one-to-one -one meeting is a discipline. It's sort of like a prayer practice. It's, it's got rules to it. There's ways to do it um, in community organizing. And I really, really encourage people to try this. Um, go with the rules at first and then invent on them later. But here's the basic structure. Who do you look for? Leaders and potential leaders. Um, who are, and remember, leaders can be broadly defined. You know, one of the things they teach is power analysis, and they always look at congregations, especially some of the older congregations they look at, they go, okay, who's the leader? Uh, the priest might be able to get people in the room on Sunday, but the rest of the week is useless. Who around here is actually leading? Well, the choir director puts 15 people in the room all the time. Who else is actually leading? Oh, this grandmother over here brings 30 of her family members with her to church every day. She's the one we want to know, right? So. Remember that leadership means a lot if you got followers, you're a leader. Focus. When you have a one-to-one -one meeting, and you'll see this on the worksheet as well, it's not about you. If you call a one-to-one -one meeting with somebody from the congregation or somebody outside the congregation, the focus is on them. It's not a place for you to tell the person who you are or to sell them on your church or your faith or your program in the church. It's really about listening. And this is why Ed Chambers calls this radical. Ed Chambers says that we don't listen well as a culture. It's not something we do particularly well. So part of this is about creating a discipline of listening to other people. What animates this? 
person? What's formed them? What's their story? What spiritual research is this person looking for? Are they looking for community? What kind? Take some time after you meet with this person to sketch out, and they call it a stick figure, which is a little, sketch out who this person is. Remember what they said. Whether you do this physically or you just sit down and you remember who this person is, think about this listening. It's a very active listening. We don't do it a lot. And you've got to ask questions that help you listen. Um, it also happens for a particular amount of time. Have any of you ever been in a coffee conversation or sitting with somebody and this conversation just goes on and on and you're just looking for an out? I think we've all been there, right? A one-to-one has a very specific time. 30 to 60 minutes. No less than 30, no more than 60. We're going to practice and we'll be a little less than 30 today, but you'll get the idea. You have to have an appointment to have a one-to-one and you've got to get consent. The appointment can be, hey, can we talk in 10 minutes? But you've got to have this consent that we're going to get together. And it's got to be one-to-one. It can't really be like one-to-five. You know, It's got to be one-to-one with someone. And where? Where is really important. It's really helpful if these conversations happen in public spaces. Coffee shops, restaurants, here at the church. Somewhere that's public, that's common ground for people, is often a really good idea with these. Why is that? Um, no, it's because you're creating a public relationship. Um, it's different than a private relationship. A private relationship, you're building a network of friends. A public relationship, you're building your ability to make change or to build a community. And so in some sense, and church is one of those places where it's a little messy, a little bit dragged, but in some sense, especially your first one-to-one, it's good if it's in a public place um, because you're on common ground. So we've done a little bit of what it is and what it isn't. It's an intentional two-way conversation. It's not an interview. You don't go in with your notepad and your list of questions. Um, it's a discussion of one's passions, not a sales pitch. It's about public relationships, not a way to make friends or gossip and chit-chat. It's about contained time, 30 to 60 minutes. It's not endless. It's a chance to listen, idea search, focus conversation. It's not open-ended, or it's not you saying, this is what we're doing, will you sign up? They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Yeah, right. I want to clarify, because this really is about the other person. It's not a sharing, not a back and forth. It is a little bit of back and forth. We're about to get into that. But it's if you turn your paper over, Start out as a really great one-to-one person. 
self-interest and motivation. Again, this is setting the groundwork because the middle is the focus on the other person. Listening intently, following your curiosity, getting them to talk, speaking really in order to draw them out. Probing, not prodding is a difference between agitating like a washing machine and agitating, you know, like the pollen is agitating my nostrils right now. Um, people like to talk in abstraction. Try to get them to share specific stories. Ask specifically about, you know, was there something that made you, you know, say that about what you value? Um, something when you grew up? Be courageous. Use follow-up questions. Gain a deeper understanding of the person. Ask the why. Ask them why they chose their job or that volunteer activity. This will give you insight into what really matters to them. So I like to kind of joke that every city has their own question. I moved from Washington where the question was, what do you do? Where do you work? Because in Washington, everybody's always trying to say, like, can I create a relationship with you where my senator will get this thing passed, or my lobby group will be able to talk with you. It's like, where do you work? What do you do? What is it in St. Louis? There's a joke about what our question is. What school did you go to? Where did you go to school? Where did you go to high school? Right? Why? Oh, I can tell. Why? Because I can tell by your answer. I know everything I need to know about you. Really? I know. Yeah. What kind of house, what, what, how big your house was, what kind of house, what your house was built of, whether you came from a two-parent family, whether your parents are educated, I, you know, I know everything I need to know about you. that follow-up question. Why? What does it mean that you went there? 
And then there's an end to these meetings. Thank God, right? Um, and at the end, there's not a pitch. There's no sales pitch. You know, it, it, the other place they really teach intentional conversation is sales, right? This is the reverse of sales. But in some cases, you may want to find out if this person has another person you want to talk to, um, that you could have a one-on-one -on -one to. This will expand your list of potential relationships, give you an easy introduction to the next person. And you can say, hey, can I say that you said to talk to them? You know, say you're part of one of our task forces that's trying to work on welcome or trying to work on building community. And you meet with somebody and you say, hey, you came to church with that friend of yours. Um, we're trying to figure out what kind of programming we want to do here in the community or what kind of outreach you want to do. Can I talk to them, too? Would you mind, you know, like, emailing us and helping set that up? Some of this is about, like, how you build the groups of people that are going to be involved. And I'm self-interested here in the church. I want to see a lot of programs we have and ministries and community really thriving. I want our network of relationships to get strong. But this works in work, too. This works in life. Um, you want to figure out how to build your carpool for your kids, or you want to figure out how to um, get your neighbor elected to the alder person position. This is the kind of work it takes. It takes building this network of relationships. And then it's always important to close the meeting. Um, thank the person for their time. Uh, decide whether you want to get together again, or invite them to be part of a bigger conversation, go to the house meeting, or simply just thank them, because you may not want to take this relationship anywhere else. Sometimes you have those kind of one too. Uh, so, but know that there, there should be a close, a sense that this is like, thank you, this is good. So I want to fishbowl for a minute. Um, I want to take a one-to-one -one meeting and talk to you about it. So do I have somebody who's brave enough to let me one-to-one them? Man. So there are three rules while we do this. Um, one, this is not a normal one-to-one -one because we're in front of a group of people. Two. Um, just be yourself. Don't stress this too much. And three, I may pause and break the third wall and like explain something. I'm gonna try not to. But Meg, thanks so much for meeting. You're welcome. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. How have you been? Good. Things are good. Good. Yeah. I I know you and Brian are getting ready to go to Maui, and this is your honeymoon. That yes. It's been long. It is. It How is. long has it been since you guys have been putting this off? Um, we today's actually our second wedding anniversary today. Um, so that's really cool. And <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. Um, and so we have been putting this off since right before, right after we got married. Very the cool. plan was always to delay the honeymoon um, until the one year anniversary, and you know, life happens. Yeah, life happens. So my husband and I couldn't wait to go on our honeymoon. We're both big travel folks. Mm -hmm. And so we actually went before we got married. Um, <laughs> and I think we, we both, it worked out for timing, but it was yeah. really, really fun. We went down to Cancun. Um, where are you going on your honeymoon? We're going to Maui. And has that been like a dream for you? Well, so what's really interesting is that up until about three weeks ago, we were gonna go to Orlando. Um, Cause I've never been to Florida and I, I really wanted to go to Wizarding World of Harry Potter, and um, that was kind of the the deal when Brian and I got out of debt, is that um, we could go to Wizarding World of Harry Potter, um, but then I realized that 
I didn't want a trip, I wanted a vacation. So we switched, and now we're going to Hawaii. Very cool. You said something about when Brian and I got out of debt. Was that a big goal for you guys? Yes. Okay. Yes. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so when Brian and I got married, we um, came into the marriage uh, total with $30,000 in debt. And um, Brian was freelancing at the time, and I was working part-time in retail, and um, we just felt totally trapped in terms of our finances. And um, we kicked, clawed, and screamed our way out of debt. And uh, this past November, uh, we finally finished it off. Um, so it took us um, just about a year uh, to pay off $30,000. And so, yeah. That had to feel like just such a burden. Oh I, still, I still can't believe it. We do the budget, and at the end of it, we're like, we have money. <laughs> there is money. Very, very so, yeah, cool. it's been really neat. And you said, what's the difference for you between a trip and a vacation? I know for me, like, when I travel, there are times when I'm, like, going to go with the church, and I've got to, like, lead a group of people somewhere, right. and that feels like a trip. Mm -hmm. Whereas vacation, for me, I just think of, like, when I don't have to do that. But what's exactly. the difference for you? So I like to have, so Brian and I have never actually really traveled together. So that's been one of the interesting things that we've had to navigate um, is what does this trip look like for us? What does this time away from St. Louis look like? Um, and so for me, Orlando and Disney World and Wizarding World Harry Potter, that would have been go, 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 go. Let's make sure we get everything done um, in a fairly short time period. That to me felt like a trip that let's check off all the boxes, let's run around, and I just felt like I would be exhausted every day and not really get to enjoy it. Um, and what I want is to do nothing on a beach for a little bit. So we're taking a vacation. Um, we're still gonna go on some excursions. Brian and I love to zip line, so we're gonna zip line. Um, and we're gonna do um, some kind of fun things, but it's gonna be at a much more relaxed pace, a much more uh, rejuvenating pace, yeah. if you will. It sounds like life keeps you pretty busy. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh. <laughs> what, what is that about? What keeps you guys busy, so busy? Um, stuff. I mean, uh, we both work full-time jobs. Um, we have a cat that requires a lot of attention. Um, you know, working on our relationship together, working on our relationships individually, friends, um, we're both very active in our recovery, um, and so, I mean, all those things take up a lot of time, which I enjoy. Yeah, it's, in some ways I think vacation for me is like the time when I get to sort of be the person I wish I was mm -hmm. day to day, yeah. right? Do you find that, is that like, um, I, for me, like the spiritual practice of Sabbath is sort of mm -hmm. one of those things that I aspire to and don't mm -hmm. often actually achieve. Um, how does, it sounds like you frame vacation that way. That's what we're working on. So Brian is actually working on trying to figure out how we can incorporate. We've done a great job of incorporating Christian practices into our regular life. Um, and so Brian is currently working on how to figure out how to incorporate some more Jewish practices. And so he's just, um, he's either finished or he's working on um, reading a book that's discussing Jewish practices in a modern day life. And one of the things that he's kind of toying around with is the concept of Sabbath. Um, you know, because we both work full-time jobs, weekends tend to be eaten up by grocery shopping and, you know, errands and cleaning and those types of things. And so he's trying to honor this concept of Sabbath to where he'll have one day 
that is basically lounge around, do, do nothing, and just relax, recharge for the coming week. And then the other day, he will um, in, engage in those types of errands in the to-do list. Um, so, but that's what we're looking for, is that he and I have been go, 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 go for so long. Um, we're ready to unplug and just relax. Yeah. It sounds so I'm excited for me. I'm so excited. There's a, there's a group of us at church that have been talking a little bit about like contemplative practices mm-hmm. and being quiet. I joke, I feel like, like we're in this extroverted church, and like even our noonday Wednesday service, it's like chatter before mm-hmm. it starts. And there's a group of us that have been thinking a little bit more on our own, but we're starting to talk a little bit about how could we bring some of these practices together and do some quiet time and like weed out. I wonder if you guys would like to be part of that conversation at some point. I definitely would like to be because contemplative prayer is honestly the best way that I connect with um, God and my higher power. Um, Because I find when I'm actually trying to convey thoughts or feelings to God, I find that um, I need to check my motives. So I'm just like, dear God, please watch over so-and-so, but really this is what I want, (laughs) but that will be done, right? Um, and so I find that I connect best with God when I just don't say anything. Yeah. Um, and I just kind of let, you know, the universe speak to me rather than my putting things out into the universe. Because God knows. God's watching what I think and feel, you know. I don't really need to say anything. So it's Sounds time to listen. Sounds a lot like the way you describe the difference between a trip and a vacation. Mm-hmm. Well, Meg, thanks so much. You're um, I'd love to get together again. Can I email you when we're getting this group together to talk yeah, about Sabbath?
moves is to practice it. So partner up, spread out. Um, I would say kind of anywhere the lights are on, because um, the kids are playing flashlight night where the lights are not on. Um, and take the next, let's say 20 minutes, because that'll bring us to um, 15 after. Um, the next 20 minutes, and do a shortened one-to-one. Have one person initiate and do 70% you know, of the listening, and then after 